I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Wild Tales podcast. And this one is a particularly special one as we're here recording in front of a live audience. The podcast is presented by the Book of Man and supported by Talisker Single Malt Whiskey who have given everyone a special hot chocolate. I have two fantastic guests today for this special edition. Firstly, we have Megan Hine, a survival expert and adventurer who runs expeditions around the world and works on TV shows with Bear Grylls as well as her own, including the recent Curse of Akakor, in which she guided a team into the Amazon jungle in search of a city of gold. My other guest is James Ketchell, an adventurer who is the only person to have accomplished the ultimate global triathlon rowing single-handedly across the Atlantic Ocean, reaching the summit of Mount Everest, and cycling 18,000 miles around the world. He also recently circumnavigated the world in a gyrocopter. Welcome, two amazing people, uh, amazing guests. Firstly, I'd like to introduce and say welcome to Megan Hine. Megan is an adventurer, a survival expert, and you've also just done, uh, or you had done a TV documentary, is that right, called The Curse of Akakar? Akakar, yeah. Akakar, where um, Megan went into the Amazon rainforest looking for the lost city of gold. Yes. Which is, I mean, that's cool. That's Megan, there's a lot more that we're going to talk about with yourself and how you come to be where you are now. Moving on to James, James Ketchell is an extraordinary individual he has done what is called an ultimate triathlon yeah it happened by accident he accidentally rode the atlantic climbed everest and then cycled around the world so, <laughs> don't hang around with him weird stuff happens uh, but also it, like that wasn't enough he also i think you learned to well hopefully you learned to fly yeah. a gyrocopter which these I've actually been in a gyrocopter really yeah yeah I went in one in Portugal with this lunatic and he took me up and basically what it is it doesn't really have an engine it does yeah but once it gets going it sort of like just keeps itself yeah. in the sky and apparently they're they're quite safe so the rotors are not powered yeah the rotors are not powered There's like a helicopter the rotors are powered Whereas on a gyrocopter or gyroplane, the rotors are free spinning. So you have an engine at the back which turns a propeller. That pushes you forward and the wind coming up underneath the rotors from your forward motion causes them to spin. It's called auto-rotation. So that's what it's called. And yeah, they're very safe. You you can't fall out the sky. Yeah, very safe. (laughs) I'm not convinced. But anyway, I've had some bad experiences in helicopters. Admittedly, not gyrocopters, but... Yeah, so James decided to fly around the world in that, so we're going to chat about that, because I think, I mean, they're open as well, they don't have a cockpit, so he was bearing himself to the elements and the environment, <laughs> up at however high you were, but we'll talk about yeah, that in a minute. So obviously this is a podcast about adventure, resilience, being outdoors, you know, thanks to Talisker, it's all about being out there, being a wild spirit. So first of all, what initially drew you both into adventure? 
Uh, Megan, go on. Um, what drew me to adventure? I think I really struggled at school to sit still for very long. I kind of I find it very hard to sit still at all. Um, and although I did okay at school, um, I really found like my niche within like the military cadets. Um, and just took advantage of as much adventurous training as I could get my hands on. So it was like winter climbing in Scotland and whitewater kayaking and things from quite a young age. And kind of just fell into it. Um, I ended up taking a gap year and went off to New Zealand for a year when I was 17. Um, and didn't really come back since then. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of been, yeah, I suppose. Uh, awesome. So I've never really like had a, a goal in mind as such. It's just a series of events and things. And I guess being open to opportunity and whatever comes my way really like I love a bit of adventure and a bit of danger so yeah whatever <laughs> whatever comes along and it's just I suppose led me into kind of the route that I've taken um, to work you know on some of the biggest adventure TV shows on in the UK and internationally um, as well as running my own expedition company as well where I take high profile individuals all over the world to some really exciting places so yeah I suppose I've been quite fortunate really like how it's all kind of panned out awesome um, I want. Um, I've got some more questions about how your route and how you got to where you are now. But James, how did you uh, get into this adventure lark? Um, I used to watch too much Tintin when I was young. <laughs> no, no, I actually did watch Tintin. Um, so when I was young, I really struggled a lot. I was quite badly bullied at school, and I, and uh, when I was young, it was very very difficult for me. But the one thing that made me quite happy was spending time outdoors and making little campfires and things. I was a bit of a pyromaniac. And um, so I used to go out and, and build camps and things like that, and that kind of made me quite happy. Um, I then really I, I got into I started I learned about some people who rode a boat across the Atlantic Ocean, which I thought was incredible. Who, who was that? Uh, it was John Fairfax and another guy, like back in the early 19th century. I oh. mean, when they were literally in like a boat that you would see on the well, out on the, um, you know. Uh, yeah, just open top thing, just nothing like you would see now. And I thought that's a hell of an adventure. And I couldn't really get that thought out of my head. And I had a bad motorcycle accident, uh, very bad actually, and broke my legs and broke my back. And I couldn't walk for for the best part of uh, six months. Um, yeah, and I found myself in hospital for a while. Um, well, I had to. I actually had to have a nurse wash me, so it wasn't all bad in some respects. Um, but I, I, I felt like I needed something to aim for, and I didn't have a clue what I was doing, to be perfectly honest, but I knew what I wanted to do, and I decided I was going to try and row across the Atlantic, and, and then in it just things happened from there, really. It's funny, because I had a couple of mates a while ago who, uh, when I was in the military, they, they rowed the Atlantic, and when I heard about that, I was like, ah, I am never doing that. That sounds like the worst thing you could ever want to do is be stuck on a boat and then go to sea. So, slightly different to you, I didn't want to do it, and then ended up finding myself doing it, whereas you And I wanted to do it with someone else. No one would do it with me. That's <laughs> true. I wonder why. <laughs> uh, was there any, was anyone that you sort of, apart from those guys, was there anyone that you looked up to adventure-wise? You know, was there a, was there figures out there that were doing crazy stuff that sort of inspired you to push yourself a bit further and get into what you do? Um, I think growing up, I was aware of the fact that there were um, like Shackleton and Oates and all these amazing explorers um, over the years. I was aware of them. 
um, but there wasn't there wasn't really anybody that I really looked up to um, externally. I suppose when I was in the military cadets, I had um, a teacher who was very much into adventurous training and just gave me a huge amount of opportunities to go climbing and things with with him at the time, and which I'm very very grateful to. So for him and also my father. Um, who used to, like years ago, like used to do some pretty crazy expeditions. I was helping my mum clear out their house like quite a few years ago now and I stumbled across some diaries that my dad had written uh, and there's like all these, these stories from when he was like, in his early 20s uh, he was a geologist um, and where he's being like chased through the forest by the leader of the expedition with a shotgun and, and things and this was a side of my father I, I didn't even know about so I think it's quite maybe in the blood a little bit What the... I? <laughs> I thought you were going to say like oh, he was getting ch in a diary entry, he was getting chased by a wild animal, but it was someone on the team with a shotgun. Yeah, I think I think they'd been out there, and it was obviously it was quite a long time ago. So it was before we had like satellite communications and things, and those areas would have been very remote. Um, and they were out there doing some sort of geology research, looking at rocks, I guess, <laughs> for like months on end. Oh right. And okay. their their leader just went a little bit like what we call like bushy, where somebody spent too long outside uh, on their own or out in the wild it's a new term yeah <laughs> they go they go a little bit bit crazy uh, and he obviously had <laughs> but i think he'd also stolen some like inuit um artifacts as well so um the inuits then thought that maybe he'd been like possessed obviously he's not around anymore is that right there's no no he's, he's still around yeah. oh is he yeah yeah, yeah. i'm right. talking about him like in the past What's <laughs> Um, yeah, Martin Hein, but he wouldn't have been like... I don't yeah. know, who's the lunatic Oh, the, the lunatic. Gun? Oh, I don't know. I don't know what his name is. He might uh, not still be around. I don't know. Stay <laughs> <That's a shame. laughs> yeah. clear of that one. Yeah. Um, James? Oh, uh, I used to daydream a lot. So I would daydream about people like Captain Cook, you know, discovering new countries. and What I thought was really interesting is like when people like Christopher Columbus set off, they literally thought they were going to sail off the edge of the world. And, <laughs> that and then I was very much aware of you know Ranoff Vines and, and, and people like that but yeah. I, I I didn't I just sort of focused on my own thing really yeah okay so there wasn't really you, you sort of inspired yourself by wanting to get out and about and I didn't yeah I just wanted to get out there and do something I didn't think too much about it really um, yeah what was it what was it how, how did the idea or the accidental idea come about to do what you did like it's pretty mad, you know. Uh, so, you uh, want to uh, row the ocean on your own. <laughs> I mean, I did it with a few lads, and to be fair, I wish I'd done it on my own now because they've done my head in. <laughs> but uh, no, they're good lads. Um, row the ocean on your own, then climb Everest. Yeah, is, so I'll, I'll, yeah, tell you how, I'll tell you how that happened. Um, I only ever set out to row across the Atlantic, I had uh, no desire to do anything else. But during my preparation, I met another guy who was rowing across the Atlantic as well. And he happened to be, we, we just kind of clicked, we became good mates, and he was a very accomplished high altitude climber. The guy had summited Everest five or six times, I think. And he was like, look, after the row, come out and, and climb Everest with me. And I said, listen, I, I don't think I can do that. I've done a little bit of climbing before, but I don't know if I can do that. And I got home from the row, and, and I had a real job at the time, and I was sitting in the office, and I remember the phone rang, and, and he said, are you coming out to Everest or what? and uh, I shouldn't have had my phone on me, It was they were banned in the office. And I looked up and everyone was typing away, looking really fed up. And I just said, yeah, I'm in. And, and, and <laughs> But that's when it got difficult because he then said, you know, you've got six months to raise 30,000 pounds. And that, that is the hard part, it's getting to the start line. 
Uh, and so then I had to go and try and find all the funding for it. I, I, have, I have a crazy story about how I got sponsored by Nando's to climb Everest. You would never then. believe it, but uh, do you want to hear the Nando's story? Yeah, real, I don't yeah, want to take yeah, too much yeah. time. <laughs> I'll tell it really, really quickly. So, so I was very lucky. I was given a spreadsheet and it had a thousand different CEO, managing director email addresses on it. And you, you, with data protection and stuff, you can't really do that anymore. But this guy gave it to me and said, listen, spam all these people, but don't tell them where you got it from. I said, great. So I emailed all these, these people. I didn't hear anything back. And I realized that I hadn't scrolled down. There was one name left, and his name was Andrew. And he was the marketing director at Nando's. And I thought, well, none of these other people have got back to me, so why waste my time? And I thought, well, if I don't send the email, nothing's going to happen. So I pinged the email off anyway. And I kid you not, half an hour later, the phone rung and it was Andrew. And his exact words were, James, this is Andrew from Nando's. I've just read your email. It's bloody brilliant. But tell me one thing. Do you actually eat Nando's? So I paused and was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Um, every day. And I take my friends. It cost me a fortune. <laughs> but I, but, Which is obviously a lie. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but I can only eat lemon and herb. I can't eat anything spicy because basically I'm a bit of a girl's blouse. Right. And the bloke was like, what? You've rode the Atlantic. You're going out to Everest and you're telling me you can't eat our hot chicken. I said, yeah. And he said, that's the best story I've ever heard. 24 hours later I met with a guy and 48 hours later they'd sponsored me and it was funny how it all I had one uh, two weeks left before I had to, to pay the bill to get out there and that was that was the yeah. biggest challenge it wasn't so difficult when I got out there yeah. <laughs> it wasn't but so then I got, I got Everest. yeah I got back from that and I didn't realize but I had quite a nasty lung infection so when I returned back to, to London I actually went straight to hospital and that's when I learned that I, I had pneumonia, but I didn't, didn't know at the time. So that made it a little bit harder coming back down. Um, and I was then lying in hospital and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be a great idea to cycle around the world? <laughs> so I, I got myself better. And, but my life had taken a slightly different turn at that point. I was giving talks in schools and I was doing stuff with the scouts. And I didn't really know where this was going to lead me or take me. But I'd found something that had given me direction, purpose, and something that just made me happy. And I thought, all right, I'm going to cycle around the world. And, and, and I'll tell you, just, I'll quickly wrap this up. But when I got back, I finished in Greenwich Park. And all the media came out. It was a very quiet day. And they said, do you know there's like 8 billion people on the planet? And you've just become the first and only guy that's rode an ocean, summited Everest, and cycled the world. It's a bit like an ultimate triathlon. Now, I felt guilty because I can't run. I have bolts in my ankle. But, but luckily, no one ever questioned me. And, and, and that was that. So that's how the term ultimate triathlon was, was born. And then I wrote a book and I wanted to call the book It's All Mental. So I believe everything in life is in your head. And they're like, you're not calling it It's All Mental. So then it had to be called the ultimate triathlon. And, and that's how it all stuck and how it all happened. But I quite like It's All Mental. Oh, I do. Honest, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna, my next book is It's All Mental. Uh, Megan, you've just come back from South Africa filming. How, how did you tell us about your journey into that world? <laughs> so I'm asking basically because I know you're all over there. How Megan got into the crazy world of TV. She's just come back from South Africa working on 
what's it called again? Um, it's called You Versus Wild. That's it's it. like an interactive show. Yeah. Come cool. in. Um, so the, I got into the TV side, kind of. I kind of fell into it, I suppose, kind of like most things that I've done in life. Um, that I had picked up my my outdoor qualifications, like my guiding qualifications, quite early on. Um, so like my 18th birthday present had been like my mountain leader, which is kind of like a basic outdoor qualification in the UK. Um, and that's how I funded my way through university. Um, and I sort of I've been taking people out uh, into the mountains, and like my whole career and like, my whole mind, everything was just so focused on the mountains. I was just absolutely obsessed <laughs> with, like, with climbing and being out. Um, that it was just, I guess, my career just took a weird turn at some point. I think it was on my 21st birthday, I think it was. I was bivvying out by myself up in the mountains, as you do. <laughs> I went and celebrated the next night. But I um, went to... <laughs> I've got no mates. Um, <laughs> but I was, I was bivvying out by myself and I was just like... I don't know, everything kind of came into question. It's like I just thought everything I do is to protect myself from nature. I call myself an outdoor enthusiast. You know, I'm taking people out into the mountains. I'm taking them out kayaking, doing all these sort of crazy adventures with them. Um, but everything I do is to protect myself. I'm putting on my waterproof jackets. You know, I'm putting myself in my tent. When I'm climbing, I'm putting my metal protection in the rock to stop me falling off. Like I know very little about this world around me. And it was just a stroke of fate, luck, whatever you call it, that the next week a mate of mine had got some tickets to a talk on bushcraft. And I was like, well, that sounds really dodgy, <laughs> but um, I'll, go, I'll go along <laughs> and see what that's all about. <laughs> um, so I went along to this, this talk and this company happened to be um, looking for apprentices. And I was just like, wow, like, you know, a tree isn't just a tree. It's got all these medicinal properties and all these plants and stuff and all the history and things around it. Um, that uh, I applied for this apprenticeship and somehow they gave it to me and um, I ended up spending a couple of years uh, doing an apprenticeship in bushcraft and survival and that's where I started leading expeditions so working on uh, sort of very much anthropological expeditions to start with um, so traveling the world taking people out going and spending time living with native tribes and um, and then going and putting their skills into practice in jungles deserts mountains all over the world um, and then I was I moved out to to the Alps I was living out there for like 10 years um, while I was out there um, I was kind of freelancing as an expedition leader and I was working for this one company who just started doing the bushcraft um, and survival consultancy for a show called uh, Man vs Wild um, with this at the time unknown presenter called Bear Grylls <laughs> um, and so they were like oh do you want to do you want to come and do the ropes for us you know we need somebody who can come and rig um, do like the stunt rigging and stuff so I was like yeah oh, it sounds sounds fun sounds like an adventure I come along um, and very quickly they realized that I had the survival skills and the and the uh, mountaineering skills and the rope skills and the expedition guiding leading being able to look after people in these environments uh, and they obviously figured that it was cheaper to employ one person rather than a whole team of <laughs> people so um, that's kind of how I fell into the TV world uh, and for for a long time I just kept it very much like 50-50 with exhibition work and the TV work but the past few years been predominantly into the TV world where I'm now actually producing as well so um, I'll go out with a very small team and we'll actually like look for the location set up um, the shows and then we then step into a safety role when we're, we're actually filming so amazing <laughs> yeah. Megan earlier said very humbly that her job is basically tying knots for a living so. it is yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean there's a bit more to it than that but yeah she does tie knots um, mate you're, you're free uh, we'll come on to other things in a bit but you're free 
journeys that made up the ultimate triathlon what what was the hardest part of of the whole thing uh, it might as in mentally and physically minus the raising the money uh, mentally was just taking the first step and believing I could do it I want I'd wanted to row across the Atlantic for years and years and years and uh, I kept putting it off I was very worried about what other people thought of me I would let other people's opinions shape and dictate what I, I did and and it's funny you know when I got out there I thought why have I put this off for all these years um, it was wasn't easy I run out of food 230 miles from Antigua so you'll never hear me use the word starving ever um, but it was it was a magical experience um, and then physically but it wasn't it honestly wasn't that difficult to row across the Atlantic for me personally everyone here could get in a boat and go tomorrow and if you're not a very good rower guess what you've got 3,000 miles to learn you're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna, you'll, you'll get good um, there's not really that much to it to be honest but you've got to want to be out there like if you only want it 99% I'm telling you that other 1% will get the better of you mm-hmm. um, so mentally that was quite difficult to begin with but physically the hardest thing I've ever had to try and somehow overcome is is climbing Everest I've, I've, I've physically found that extremely difficult um, I didn't have any mental problems I was out there with other people everyone around me was really supportive but I guess the best way to describe it is imagine sprinting 100 metres as fast as you can so you're, you're, you're that out of breath and it's like that just getting out of your tent putting your boots on when you're <laughs> at 8,000 metres it's, it's quite difficult it's, yeah, it takes a bit of getting used to but then it usually takes about two days to get from the summit back down to base camp but it took me four days to get back down because I didn't know at the time I had quite a nasty lung infection right and um, I have never ever been so close to just collapsing and uh, you know it's funny because when you think you're tired and, and you're hungry and you've been up a long time you're actually only 50% of what you'll actually be able to do and probably not a good idea to try and find out what your limit is but um, yeah Everest was, was very difficult for me physically and I was able to stand on top not because I'm some kind of badass adventurer it was a lot of things came together and I got quite lucky yeah uh, and then cycling around the world was just amazing um, it wasn't it, it, that wasn't physically <laughs> difficult I cycled a hundred miles a day for half a year now that's not even quick the, the, the fastest the record is half the time um, but every day I had so much energy, so, so I felt incredible. I was like a professional athlete. Um, but, but, uh, <laughs> Even if you do say so yourself. Yeah, but um, <laughs> but that will soon go when you come back. <laughs> but it's like a world eating challenge. You're just constantly looking for, for your next meal. But that, that, so this story there that, he's just, uh, that James has just mentioned about, obviously, the, the Atlantic, the, the, the Everest, the mountain, and the cycle. The one thing that sticks out for me, as you just said, he said... Um, he ran out of food 230 miles from Antigua what, the, what happened well you, what I'll, I'll you tell eating? you something right I actually tried to catch fish but they're clever little things they were they were taking the bait off the hook I kid you not <laughs> like they knew I was trying to catch them and so uh, just an FYI if anyone of you find yourself out there you need a harpoon gun and you'll get them really easily um, so I couldn't catch fish, I'm a terrible fisherman. Now in the end I actually saw, I was about 70 miles out from Antigua and I, I, I saw a, a mast on, on the horizon so I used the VHF radio and I managed to get in contact with them and they came over and dropped some food off and that enabled me to, to carry on. And it's funny, I spent the whole time out there, it's, it usually takes about 70 or 80 days to get across the Atlantic as a solo rower. 
but it took me 110 days, four hours and four minutes. Not that I was counting, right? <laughs> but the entire time I was just wishing it away. I just wanted to get there. And then when I was in the last 24 hours, I didn't want it to finish. I just wanted to, to keep going. It was it was it was amazing, yeah. So how Wildlife long, was how long incredible. did you go without? How many days were you without food before you got that recent? Uh, about four days. Yeah, okay, yeah. But the problem that you have is, I I was quite naive. I, I was a bit silly. I, I tried to keep rowing, and and that just you can't mm. continue to exercise and not eat. So but I had a water, so that was was no problem. But I just ran out of food, so yeah, you're not going to last that long. Do you have contact with the outside world? I did have a satellite phone. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I did have. So a satellite did you have backup phone. on standby or? No, 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 no. no, no. Yeah. So, but they, that was foolish when I look back. Uh, it was a lack of experience, <laughs> um, really. But, it was uh, stupid, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have got to no, the point awesome where I ran out of food. But what happens is you're so fixed on you, you know you've rode 2750 miles or whatever so you've got a little bit left to go and you think yeah i can do it i've rode and then you suddenly realize it's actually quite a long way to row <laughs> so uh yeah yeah you learn don't you <laughs> <laughs> yeah you do on the job learning yeah nothing yeah. like that yeah but no it's good megan uh so Megan, what is, is it a documentary? The Curse of Akakar? Akakar, yeah. Right, so yeah. you went looking for Lost City of Gold. Yeah, so Did this... Did you find it? <laughs> well, you guys are going to have to watch, but... Um, <laughs> oh, come on! <laughs> so this, this was like, Facebook got in touch with me last year, beginning of last year, and they'd got this like amazing like idea that I was just like, this, does, this sounds unreal, because it's, like, it's basically a true story. Back in the 70s, I think it was, there was um, a journalist called Carl Brugger, uh, who met this native um, Indian guy, this was out in Brazil, um, and um, this native Indian guy related the story of his tribe and his people and involved like alien interventions, it, it had Nazi stories in it, it was just this fantastical story that you read in this book and you're like, wow this is just insane and I hadn't realised that it was a true story, <laughs> like, um, and so what they in the book basically um, the guy relates the story of where these lost cities are so there's basically three lost cities where his people live and they still live there only they've now gone underground and they live underground in these caves um, so what we what we were sent out to do was to, to go find these caves um, and in the 80s sort of again before satellite phones and things uh, people were reading this book and were like, wow, this is an incredible story and were captured by this story and were then going out to these locations to try and find these cities. Uh, and this Native American Indian, who's actually still alive, um, was was guiding them into these places. Only some people were not coming back and they were disappearing. <laughs> so, so we were sent out and we were split into two teams. Like, my job was to take a team to actually go and see if we could find these cities. Uh, and the other team was an ex-FBI operative, um, investigative journalist, who were then to investigate what happened to these explorers that had gone out there. Uh, it turns out, I don't want to ruin it too much in case anybody does want to watch it, it's on Facebook Watch, super random channel, but it's Facebook Watch. <laughs> um, then um, it turns out that this Native American Indian, or Native South American Indian guy, who is actually an expat German, um, and was being protected by somebody within the Brazilian government and we reckon it had probably been something to do with uh, genocide that had been going on in these remote areas of the jungle because it was, well, we were out there for three months it was pretty deep into the jungle we were getting 
uh, meeting these like uncontacted tribes who have obviously been contacted now um, and spending time out there with them and hearing the stories um, that have been going on out there uh, so actually a really really interesting story so if anybody's interested in that the book uh, the chronicle of Akakor which is what the film or the documentary that we made is based on uh, is, a, is a really fascinating read that's unbelievable I still want to know whether you found the city did you find any treasure <laughs> um, we um, we actually came across because we at one point um, we were using LiDAR technology which is uh, where you fly drones um, and I don't think it gets shown because it's for social media obviously they, Facebook is a social media platform so it's all very short um, like segments that they show it in so they don't show the whole thing but we were using LiDAR which is f- like from drones and it basically scans it's able to scan through the canopy of the jungle uh, and we found an anomaly out in the terrain. Um, but we were there at a, a bad time of year, really. We were there at the end of the dry season, coming into the rainy season. Uh, and we got caught out in a few flash floods. And we just like, right, well, we do need to turn around now because otherwise we're now going into the rainy season and we're actually going to be stuck up here. There's no way to get helicopters in. There's nowhere to land them. Um, and I mean, the only way we'd have been able to get people out is cutting, like... Um, landing zones and things through the canopy or to like put a winch down like winch holes uh, in the canopy um, so we made the call to get out of there um, but there are plans to go back because this anomaly is just there's definitely something there and I'm like coming. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just to put that into into perspective sorry uh, Megan said that you spent three months out there so I've spent some time in the jungle not that long and the jungle is essentially designed to kill humans yeah. it just all it wants to do is Deep kill you it like yeah. It, just eat you it, alive, it eats yeah. you alive, you rot. Yeah. All the bugs out there are designed to kill you. The trees are designed to kill you. I mean, that is an awesome. Everything is pretty, yeah. pretty rough. Yeah, so, so the, the jungle is like, I have a love-hate relationship with the jungle. I love it because it's just so flipping hard to get by in, as you know. Like like you said, everything is out there to kill you. And there, I've, I've done other projects where I've like literally been dropped off into the jungle for like weeks on end with like nothing but a machete uh, and a medical pack. And I, I'm always looking after other people as well. So it's not just me. I'm not just responsible for me. I'm responsible for other people. So having to source food and find snakes and lizards and frogs and stuff to feed people and things um, <laughs> is always entertaining. Um, yeah, so I, but they, actually this was the first time that out on this, this show that I actually got um, jungle rot, which is like it was a bacterial infection. Because um, I'm always, I'm super like anal like with my personal admin in the jungle because uh, like you said like within like a couple of days it's like your feet literally start rotting and it's like when you're out there for weeks on end um it can just yeah it can cause all sorts of havoc and it can basically wipe you out and this jungle rot is where you get like these tiny little uh, blisters on the bottom of your feet which kind of spread uh, and just become these open sores it's incredibly painful uh, basically the bottom of your feet starts falling off um, <laughs> and it's a bacterial infection rather than like a yeast infection um, so and it's really really hard to treat you have to be able to dry your feet out and that's what caught a lot of like ancient or older like explorers and adventurers out like many years ago uh, was this um, because it's like once you get it unless you can dry your feet out you're not getting rid of it it's pretty nasty stuff you essentially need to get you need, basically you need to get yourself out of the jungle dried <laughs> off and sort of squared away in a five star resort but it is amazing it's like if you can get into like the personal admin like I get into a routine now like when I'm out in the jungle and it's like I have like my admin like before 
I get into bed. So I always work like what I call a wet dry routine, which I'm sure what you yeah. guys have done in the military. Uh, it's like where you have like your wet kit that you wear during the day and you have the, your dry kit and it's like your dry kit and your bedding like you are fighting to keep that dry because the jungle's like flipping wet like <laughs> it's really wet um, so you're like fighting to keep it all dry uh, and then like once you've finished all your admin like once you get to camp you've put your hammock up you know you've done everything you need to do in there um, you're then uh, go for a wash like make sure you wash I always carry like little antibacterial soaps and stuff wash myself wash my clothes um, and then I can get into my dry kit uh, and then when I get into my hammock I've got my routine of like I always carry like antifungal foot powder which literally goes everywhere into all like the nooks and crannies uh, because you will start developing yeast infections which is pretty unpleasant <laughs> if you don't just to elaborate on that wet and dry I'm quite au fait <laughs> with the wet and dry routine um, I'd like to give a bit more on that basically imagine so you're in your dry kit in your hammock it's all nice and warm and you're like cozy <laughs> then it's the morning and you get up and you get your wet kit out of your rucksack and you and it's and it's caked it's like you can smell the the, uh, the ammonia you know like horse piss and um you basically well that's what it smells uh, like it. <laughs> and, uh, and, oh sorry yeah that's, that's me um and then you basically, basically just putting that wet kit that's caked in sand it's soaking it's cold it is like it is the worst I guess it's the socks like the shirts the trousers it's the socks it's put it's like sitting on the edge of your hammock like psyching yourself up to put your wet socks on is the worst thing yeah <laughs> you, got pro- you have proper got to psych yourself up to get it's like horrific uh, James most arduous we've spoken about the jungle there is there I mean you've obviously encountered a lot of different environments especially on the cycle which one did you find the hardest to deal with? Uh, I found it fairly easy to look after myself out on Everest. Um, you know, as long as you've got the. I was. Ne- I'll tell you one thing. I was never cold on Everest, which sounds bizarre. But you're constantly moving, and well, unless you're in your tent. But you know, you've got the right kit. Mm-hmm. Um, the environment that was quite difficult was was out in the Atlantic. You're so everything. I ha- I wore glasses at the time, and my glasses were rusting, uh, where I was so close to the, to the sea. Um, it was just salt everywhere. Um, I was lucky. I never really had any blisters or anything. Um, I, if you want to row to the Atlantic, don't do it naked because you will get burned. <laughs> Um, I, you know, a lot of people that say oh, I row naked, but it's not a good idea. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Did you, you do it naked? Or? So we, I got, I got told. A load of us got told. Yeah, as soon as you get, get away from land, just get naked. And we're like, I was like, that sounds a bit. That sounds a bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> so we did. There's, like, there's, there's five guys on a boat. We did, we did try it, but it was just too weird. So we sort of like yeah. we chinned it off. Um, yeah. So I just used um, like cycling shorts that they worked quite well. I never had any hip. Uh, with that but it was the, the environment was extremely salty yeah uh, so that was apart from that it was it was fairly straightforward so you had uh, a different experience on mine and um, i did a yeah. podcast not last week with aldo who's one of the guys that i was doing the row with and if you listen to that you'll find out the issues that i had with a boil <laughs> it was on my ass but anyway um, <laughs> it was horrendous you, you, you yeah that would podcast. be painful <laughs> it was, it, i couldn't sit down i had to fashion like yeah. a a weird I suppose it's like a piles cushion out of one of yeah. my old t-shirts and masking <laughs> tape on t-shirt and it's like it looked like a donut I just yeah. sat on that but what work, um, but Megan was saying about routine and discipline of your admin is like so important Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Important, and every night I would always wash. I'd use wet wipes, they worked quite well. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I think that's why I probably didn't have too many problems with sores and nasty stuff. Yeah. I use wet wipes. R- routine is <laughs> so out in the Atlantic. I don't know what your experience was, but for me, like routine is your best friend. Yeah. You just lose all sense of time and day and what's going on. So once I got into that routine, it actually became quite enjoyable. Yeah. I want to stick with you, James, for a minute, and move on to the other crazy thing that you did: the gyrocopter. Yeah, well I was actually, um, prior to that I was rescued in the Indian Ocean as well, so that was a bit that was a bit crazy. Um, On your rowing, your gyrocopter? No, 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 I tried to row uh, across the Indian Ocean from uh, Geraldton, Western Australia to Mauritius, right. and basically the boat rolled over uh, halfway across and the, the, my rowing partner who I was with hit his head and we, and we had to be rescued. Oh, you were with someone that yeah, time? Yeah, I did it as a, as a, we did it as a two man, someone wanted to do it this time. Uh, with me, um, so yeah, that, that I actually came <laughs> back from that feeling quite quite down and quite fed up. But a lot of good things came off the back of that. Opportunity has a funny way of uh, disguising itself. I must admit. So I'd, I've always had an interest in flying. Uh, I always thought that flying was for very intelligent people who have lots of money. I fell way short <laughs> on, on both levels. Um, but I thought, you know what? If I can somehow row a boat a long way and climb a mountain and do a bit of cycling. Why can't I at least have a go at trying to do this? And I wanted to do something different, and gyroplanes, gyrocopters, they are very different. I started learning how to fly, and where I used to race motorbikes, I think I had fairly good coordination and balance, and I picked it up quite quickly. And I remember halfway through my my training, I I said to my instructor at the time, a very patient guy, which was useful, (laughs) I said, I'm thinking about flying one of these around the world. And you should have seen the look on his face. And he actually said to me, well, you'd better book in for some more lessons then, hadn't you? So I, so I did, and um, I then made the decision that I was going to try and fly one around the world. No, At the time, no one had successfully flown a gyroplane around the world. The challenge that you have, it's a very small aircraft. You're limited to how far you can fly. You're subject to weather. You can only fly VFR, which is visual flight rules. How far can you fly on a tank of fuel? So on a tank of fuel. So I had a big uh, ferry tank that would sit in the back. And with that, I could fly 500 nautical miles. But you know, that's you how know, long so is that? How long is 500 miles in that thing? Uh, it depends on what the wind is doing. But my, cr- I would cruise at around 90 knots, which is about 100 mile an hour in terms of uh, speed. But if if you had a tailwind, um, you go a bit quicker. But if you had a headwind, it would really, really slow you up. Um, what about if you need to go toilet? 
Uh, I never had a problem with needing to go to the toilet. See, I'd have a drama with that. So, so what I, I very quickly realised that you need to be, you cannot drink too much coffee before you fly. <laughs> but when you're flying, you're running on adrenaline. There's no autopilot, it's very open. And it's a bit like flying a motorbike in the sky, um, you know, but no one's going to pull out on you, which is very useful. Um, and it's just magical, you know, you can, you can fl they're, they're highly capable machines. You could fly at 10,000 feet, I mean, I, but I always flew about 1,000 feet above the ground. So in Wyoming, uh, I was flying at like uh, nearly 10,000 feet. Um, but most of the time I was flying very low. I even flew under the Golden Gate Bridge. It's a grey area. Awesome. You're not really supposed to do that. Um, <laughs> but then, it's not I, like the air <laughs> police are going to get you, are they? Well, you've got to be a bit careful. Um, and then I came back across the Atlantic via uh, Greenland, Iceland, Faroe Islands, because that's the only way. They're like the world's largest sort of stepping stones. Did you wrap up what, uh, cold? Yeah, I mean, where it was open cockpit, a lot of people said to me, I don't understand why you're flying around the world in an open cockpit aircraft. But there are a lot of benefits of that because for the vast majority of the time I'm flying, it was the summer, so I'm flying through a lot of hot places. When I did go through Siberia and then up into Greenland, it was obviously cold. But you know, you, you wear the right stuff. If you wear the right equipment, you'll, you'll usually be okay. Um, there was one time when I, I got caught out. Uh, I remember I was in Canada and I was flying along. I had 10 miles left until my day had finished and the, the cloud started to come descend quite quickly it was quite thick dark cloud and a bolt of lightning came literally jumped out the sky and struck some high ground to my left uh, very close to me and then another one came down in front of me so i turned the aircraft round to go back because if you get struck by lightning in this thing you, that, you're dead um, <laughs> but as i turned round and looked back it had all closed in behind me so i had to land on a road now this is not like you know the M25. It's a very remote road. It's quite long, but so I landed on it, and it just so happened there was a, like a truck rest stop, and I taxied the gyro into this <laughs> truck stop, and it was like a scene out of a James Bond film. You, you should have seen the look on these people's faces. And then the next day I, I carried on, and but a, a lot of things happen like that. Really, you, you get you get used to it after a while. You have to remember, I didn't have that much experience when I set out on this trip and a lot of people said to me, I don't want anything to do with you, you will kill yourself. <laughs> but I'll tell you something, right? The people who were at the top of their game, so the people who had a lot of experience, were all incredibly supportive. They said, look, you, this is a tall order, but if you do this, this and this, I think you'll be all right. And uh, it, it's funny, you know, I set out with not very limited experience, but I somehow managed to do it and I just took it day by day I, I broke it down and instead the problem is if you think about flying around the world or rowing 3,000 miles across the Atlantic it will very quickly blow your brain apart and your, your brain doesn't work like that you can't comprehend that much so I just thought well all I'm doing is one flight a day that's it and if you stitch those together for 175 days you've gone around the world and, that, and that's it and I finished two months ago yeah bloody hell what just quickly <laughs> what was the really like what was the route Oh uh, yeah, sorry, my route. So I, I left from Popham Airfield, which is in Hampshire, not, not too far from here, uh, then down into France, uh, and then I went into Germany because I had to stop off at an aero show uh, for the manufacturer to, to showcase the gyro. Yeah. Then I went up into Poland, Lithuania, Estonia, and then I routed right across Russia. And then from there, you see a lot of people say, how would you get across the Pacific? But it's like, well, actually, there's 47 nautical miles 
yeah. from Russia to Alaska. So it's pretty short actually. Uh, and then I routed down, uh, all the way down around the, the coast, down to San Diego. But I wanted to uh, land in every single state. So I landed in every single mainland state. There's 49 of them, Hawaii being 50th, but I couldn't fly there. Uh, and then I came back uh, across the Atlantic. And actually there was two missions. The mission was to try and safely get around the world, but the main objective was to try and speak in a school in every country and inspire, with the use of social media and that, try and inspire a million young kids to pursue their own goals and dreams. So that's what I did. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, well, that's what I tried to do anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. Brilliant. I mean, that is, oh, that is pretty unbelievable to be fair so yeah I mean hats off but um, you don't think about it anymore though I've been back two months it's like what we were saying earlier you do something and then that's it you forget you've done it you forget it and you're like what's next yeah that's a question for a bit yeah we'll talk about that later (laughs) Megan can you talk to us about near death experiences or when things go wrong 100% you've been involved in stuff that's gone uh, um, yeah, so I mean, my mostly my job involves mitigating risk. <laughs> so it's all about like making sure the chances of something happening are very slim. Um, but you know, there there is an inherent danger in the environments that we work in. And this year, I will have been away for like eleven months. You know, so the statistics of spending time in these remote and often extreme environments, you know, stuff is going to go wrong and stuff is going to happen. Um, you know, from like environmental things like landslides, avalanches, um, rockfall, uh, all of those things. Um, I mean, sort of early on in uh, the sort of filming stuff, like when we, there wasn't huge budgets um, and we, well, we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, then I used to do like a lot of things like animal wrangling and snake handling and things and I remember getting bitten by a snake that I thought I'd identified thankfully I had identified it right but it looked very similar to a highly poisonous deadly snake um, and it bit me and I, it was amazing actually because I was hand, holding this thing <laughs> and I just had I had enough time for like my brain to be like wow as it like dislocated its <laughs> jaw <laughs> it's like shit you only see that in like na- like National Geographic films and stuff and then it like it, it attached itself to my hand I couldn't get the damn thing off my hand um, and it was like for the next half an hour it's like I hope I've identified this right. Uh, obviously, I did because I'm still here. But um, <laughs> but it was in those moments where you realise actually, no, we now need, now need to start actually hiring uh, medics and animal wranglers uh, who actually know what they're doing. Um, so yeah, it's lots of things like that. And uh, I've I've been into locations where you know I have become like politically un- unstable, or I've stumbled into things. I stumbled into an opium field. Uh, quite a few years ago uh, in a, on a job in Thailand uh, ends up getting chased through the jungle by some opium farmers uh, armed opium farmers um, I've had incidents with like lions and um, yeah sort of I've, yeah been attacked a few times uh, it's just I suppose it's the nature of like the, the by job <laughs> by, by people oh by people yeah. I was like, yeah no no come out of that one uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think I actually like the, the biggest thing for me in like in these environments is actually like the human influence i think going into these environments and it's like i i kind of appreciate the the risk of going into those environments i kind of understand like that the animal behavior is pretty understandable like i can kind of understand that if you corner a wild animal you know it might attack you're in its habitat uh you know you're not really supposed to be there you know if you piss it off it's not going to be very happy with you Uh, and i kind of accept that risk and the environmental risk but it's the human element that always catches me out and I think it's that because it's such, you know, in my head, you know, we're supposed to be rational beings. Yes, underneath it all, we're animals. 
but we're also rational beings and it's like when you're operating in areas like this where you just you know you don't know how the people around you are going to behave or react <laughs> it's <a> good dinner <laughs> yeah. um that to me is like that's I find that quite hard uh, to deal with and I think it's the human factor for me that's like far more unpredictable uh, and obviously being female in some of these environments you know I'm often working in areas where you know I'm heading up a team uh, and you know these the countries you know they don't necessarily see women on the same level as a, as a guy and it's like you know I have very I have to put my ego aside in those scenarios to be able to actually get the job done I, you know, I've, I've been I've worked in places where I just thought you know if there wasn't a you know, a team of guys knit around or near me, like I wouldn't be coming back out of that environment. Um, and that's something, you know, I have to keep playing at the back of my mind. You know, these cultures, it's not my culture and I have to be respectful of that and be very aware of that and put my ego aside, which unfortunately I think like with the rise of like adventuring and adventurers, you know, there's, it's like um, that we feel like that we are entitled to go to these places and behave how we want uh, and that's something that you know I would love to see addressed actually is because we are in somebody else's culture and you have to respect it mm. right I'm very uh, aware of time and I do want to open it up I want to open up uh, to the floor questions as well but I'm just going to ask one more question myself and that is you've both done unbelievable things amazing things you're going to go on to do more greater bigger things no doubt what are what are your best traits as you as a person? You know, what is it that makes you able to do what you do? You go first. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think from from a professional standpoint, and this was something that actually took me years to uh, actually accept in myself because I spend so much time like surrounded by guys, um, and guys were my role models for most of my life. I didn't really. I've, I very rarely work with any other sort of women that are in the similar role to what I do. Um, so I, I suppose I always kind of looked at the guys that are around me and their sort of way of leadership. Um, but my way of leadership is much, is very much about empathy and being able to relate to other people. So I suppose like manipulation is probably a better way of putting it. It's <laughs> being able to get into some into the psyche of somebody and be able to guide them, um, you know, with empathy, with understanding and with compassion. And that's not necessarily sympathy. That's not taking on their emotions. Otherwise it becomes dangerous. Like when you're going, trying to go for a summit bid and you know it's dangerous and you shouldn't be doing it. Um, but it's being able to understand and being able to get onto the same level as that person. Uh, it took me a long time to recognise that as a positive thing, but that's, I suppose, that, uh, and I suppose my ability to be able to man handle my emotions, like in the wilderness, you know, this is out of my comfort zone, but like put me out in the jungle and it's like, you know, I can separate out my emotions and I put them into a box uh, and I can get on with the task that I need to do. And like, particularly when stuff goes wrong uh, and, you know, you have to react very, very quickly put aside those emotions um the fear and anxiety that might you know overtake you be able to separate those out so you can actually you know save somebody's life or get somebody out of there and prevent like the snowball effect and things going south very quickly very, very good answer um <laughs> so follow that one, yeah. long one. <laughs> <laughs> well i guess yeah one of the things that i've learned over the years is actually just to actually believe in yourself um I left school without any qualifications at all. I still don't have one to my name. I can fly an aircraft, but I don't have any qualifications. Um, and actually, 
yeah, the hardest part was just sort of believing that I could really do it all. And 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 actually, after a while, you, you start to realise you can do a lot more than than you actually think that you can. And so I've developed some. I've had a lot of people uh, tell me that I can't do things, or I'm crazy, or they don't want anything to do with this. So developing thick skin in the world we live in today is quite useful, especially with social media. Everyone's got an opinion on something. Um, and just, I suppose, I've been quite fortunate. I've set my mind on something and I've somehow been able to make it happen. And I'll tell you one thing that is that I, I have been able to do, which is quite useful, and Megan sort of touched on it as well, um, is actually believe in other people. Get, get if, if you can develop the ability to get other people to buy into what you're doing and get help from other people. People want to help you in this world, I've found more, more, more than not. When I cycled around the world, uh, and certainly when I flew around the world, I'll be playing forward favours for the rest of my life, I kid you not. And so sometimes you have to just trust people and just get out there and do it and go with your gut feeling as well, because that's quite often yeah. right. Yeah. If you think something's wrong, it probably is. Even though you might not know much about the situation, that's what I sort of felt over yeah. the years. That's, that's your gut feeling is there to yeah. protect you. <laughs> okay, so that's me. I'm going to stop gobbing off now, and I'm going to open it up to the floor. So, what I'm going to do, because there's no um, mics for you, you, you guys out there. You're going to ask a question. I'm going to repeat it and look like an idiot, but that's for the benefit of these things here. And then we or they are going to answer it. So, uh, who's first? Yeah. There's been a lot of talk about the number of people who are going up Everest and how actually if you can afford it, that's potentially more important than your preparedness and capability. Yeah, I do have not So the the question was Maybe around. I oh, do you want me to do it? <laughs> <laughs> well, good on projecting your voice. <laughs> so the question was uh, my opinion around Everest. There's a lot of people climbing it these days. If you have the money, can you do it? There are a lot of people doing it. I climbed uh, a while ago, back in 2011, and there were quite a lot of people then. The press gives Everest a really bad rap. It basically, you know, you see all these pictures of long queues. It's, I can tell you one thing, it's not always like that. That mountain is, trust me when I say it's a big place. And there's usually enough mountain to go around. But what will happen is, if, if in the one particular climbing season, there is only one weather window, everyone who's worked hard and remortgaged their houses is going to want to have a go at that one weather window. When I was there, I was very lucky. There were multiple weather windows, and, and it was just myself and my Sherpa that stood on top uh, and, and we got back down. There are now... And I had... You know, I'm not really a hardened climber as such. I was very lucky that I stood on top of Everest. Uh, and I did have some climbing experience before, but not a huge amount. One of the reasons I got on the expedition is because I was with a friend of mine. And, and, and the guy who was leading it said, well, if you can somehow row 3,000 miles across the Atlantic on your own, you've got something that enables you to, to, to kind of be out here. It's not particularly technical. If you brought Everest down to sea level, you could run up it. Um, but there are some parts that are... Um, that are a little bit more exposed uh, and there are uh, you know there are people out there now uh, I think over the last year or two it was highlighted there are people out there who, who don't have that much experience but what I'd be looking at there needs to be some kind of regulation because there's zero and so you know if someone has got the money to, to go out there there will always 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 be someone who will take it off them um, but I think that there will be some changes that are introduced and 
I, I, ultimately for me it was a great place when I was out there I met a lot of really good people can I can I just add to that as, as a professional like as a professional guide like this is actually something that I'm personally rather concerned about at the moment uh, like the rise of adventure and you know in social media and the adventurer um, has, has massively grown like exponentially and wherever I work I work all over the world and uh, we wanna, when we go into country I'll often employ um, local mountain rescue teams local guides and without fail like wherever whoever I talk to in those countries um, rescue attempts of people being ill-equipped to be in those environments has massively increased uh, and this is for, for me for as, a, as a professional this really concerns me um, and I think it's something that we really need to address and it was something I was saying talking to James about earlier actually uh, is the brands as well because brands are now recognizing the power of uh, mass marketing um, to uh, like the everyday adventurer so people who aren't necessarily aware that there's this whole outdoor industry of instructors and guides out there that can actually take people and teach people the skills that they need to go and have these amazing adventures like James hiring his um, instructors and and things there are people just going out there um, and that that for me that really needs to be addressed because it is very concerning I think, just real quickly, I think that they're introducing a policy now where you have to have climbed a couple of 8,000 metre peaks, I think, yeah. now. But, so, that's, it's, but that's they're trying not, to... Yeah, yeah, but that's not just on Everest. That's like that's in all yeah. these environments, jungles, yeah. deserts. You know, Everest obviously gets the attention because it's Everest. Mm. Um, but, you know, all these environments, even like North... I'm based in North Wales. You know, I don't know how often I... Like, when I am back and I'm going out in the mountains, like, for a run or whatever like how often or how frequently I run into people who like standing out there with their maps upside down, <laughs> flapping in the wind, like standing yeah. there in their down jackets yeah, in the yeah. pissing rain, yeah. you know, like completely like ill-prepared. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I, that's so it's something that like, that needs, really, really needs to be, to be looked at because the outdoors is an amazing place to be, but people do need to be equipped to go yeah. out into it safely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you've all potentially been in life-threatening situations uh, how have you managed uh, coming to terms with accepting that you could die, like this could be the moment when you aren't able to carry on? Uh, I'll, I'll have a go. Um, I basically, because mine's, mine's quite simple, I've got the mind of a child so I don't pay it too much attention. I try not to focus on something that hasn't happened, because it hasn't happened. I essentially try and focus on staying alive and looking at what I need to do to get myself into a better position and a better place to then crack on with whatever it is I'm doing. So I adopt a juvenile mindset and I probably don't pay it the, the respect it probably deserves. <laughs> but anyway, there is there is method to my madness, but that's what I do to a certain degree. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, for me it's like an acceptance of that and it, like that's what drives me. Like I, I suppose I get off on like that like high of like the adrenaline and and things obviously when I'm guiding I am responsible for other people um, and then you know like for me it's all about like I, I'll question myself but I won't doubt myself you know if, if I'm in a situation where I'm doubting myself I shouldn't be there and I certainly should not be there with clients um, so questioning yourself is healthy doubting yourself in those environments is not yeah yeah I try not to think you see thinking is uh, overrated try not to think too much no um, you, the, 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 the scariest situation I've ever been in is clinging to a side of a rope ladder trying to climb up the side of an oil tanker off a, a little <laughs> rowing boat and it was very rough sea as well um, <clears throat> it wasn't particularly scary at the time adrenaline is an amazing thing 
but looking back on that, I thought, my God, if I'd fallen off that, that that's me over. But I, I don't know what you guys, but for me, <clears throat> every time I've been in a quite a dangerous situation, I've I haven't been aware of it so much. I've just had a lot of adrenaline running through me and I've just been focusing on doing what I need to do to, to get through that situation. Then you reflect back and think, that was so stupid. Why did that happen? Or I should have done that differently, but hindsight's a wonderful thing. You know? Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. <laughs> Thinking is overrated. <laughs> I don't do much of it. Um, any questions from this side? Yeah. Okay, okay. Me personally, I've got no problem. I don't really, it's no problem for me. I can come back. Um, I actually, I, I got back from flying around the world and two days later I was in a, t a black tie event speaking at an event in Wales and <laughs> I, I, I don't really mind. I'm a people person, so I like being with people. I like I so. I, I've personally never had. So what will happen? Well, I'll tell you what will happen when you get back from something pretty epic. All your friends and family initially for the first few days were like, "Wow, wow," and then like the novelty will have just totally worn off, and no one will ask you anything about this amazing thing that you've just done. But you get used to it after a while and just just crack on. Yeah, I don't know. Are you guys. Yeah, I, I call that the expedition blues. Yeah. It's like get back off a trip, and you know, for 24 hours a day, for days, weeks, months, how long, however long I've been out in that environment, you know, like from the moment I open my eyes in the morning to the moment I shut my eyes at night, my clients or the film crew are there. They're asking questions. You know, I'm responsible for them even at night, and it's like you're just on this massive like buzz the whole time, hyper aware. Um, super responsible and then you come back and then suddenly there's nobody there <laughs> it's like yeah it's, it's it's kind of it's a very weird feeling and I think that I guess that's one of the reasons why I've now built my career that I'm away so much of the year because when I'm back it's like I can manage a couple of days at home and I'm like I really need to go again <laughs> like, yeah it's probably not very healthy <laughs> for me I am um, when I'm on these expeditions or whatever it is I'm doing I actually dream about being in Sainsbury so I ain't got an issue with it <laughs> I'm quite happy to be reaching about the aisles picking up bottles of Baileys and whatnot, so yeah, I'm happy with that. Uh, quick, yep. Okay, so when I was out in the Atlantic, I was out there for quite a long time on my own, but I I felt like I needed to be rowing towards something, so I used to write down in a little book all the things I wanted to do when I got home, and I had a lot of time to think, and so I'd use that, try to use that time wisely. I tried to learn Spanish on a podcast and failed <laughs> miserably, uh, but it kept my brain active, and I, I listened audio books. I don't know what you guys, but audio books, best friend. Oh, I love audio books, um, so tried to keep my brain active but in a, in, a, in a positive way. I try not to let my brain wander too much otherwise I'll end up going off on a wild ro emotional roller coaster ride talking about things that have not even happened yet and probably never will happen. 
So I try, I call it staying on an even keel. I try to stay on an even keel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm usually with um, clients, um, but I still feel quite isolated because ultimately, um, not necessarily with the film crews, that's kind of a different job, but when I'm with my clients, I'm often the sole leader. Um, and that can be quite isolating because you're responsible for all these people who are looking up to you. Uh, and don't obviously don't necessarily have the same skill set that you do um, but that can be quite um, isolating and you know when you're out in somewhere for long periods of time and I have to keep my mind active and I do something which I call scenario planning uh, which maybe sounds a little bit morbid but it's on those downtimes you know when you're kind of like just walking along rather than you're not you're not necessarily climbing or doing anything that's particularly like dangerous in that moment uh, but I'll, do, I'll run little scenarios through my head so I'm keeping my brain active and prepping it to react if something happens. So I'll be like, okay, if I'm walking on here and my client falls off the edge of the track here, how am I going to get them out with 24 hours from help? Like, what am I going to do through to, like, uh, alien spaceships crashed in front of me? Like, <laughs> what am I going to do? Because you're basically, what you're doing in that, it's like, it's like visualisation that athletes do. It's like you're tricking your brain into believing that it's been in that situation it's already dealt with it so you're actually ready and it's like when you're out there for months on end and you're like you're absolutely knackered and like you just really need to sleep uh you have like well i have to be able to keep my brain going um so that i can actually be responsible uh, and that yeah that's the way i do that um i've never done anything on my own i've always been with people and they're normally my mates and they do my head in so i dream of isolation on those <laughs> situations. you know i did an i did an expedition not long ago in a canoe there was two of us we've got had a canoe each and i spent most of my time on the other side of the, of the river because he's done my nutting <laughs> no, we, we were mates i yeah I've, I've never really had that isolation thing so I've, I, I like the team aspect side of doing something I like sharing my experiences with other people uh, I think we are cracking on with the time so I'm going to have one more question if anyone wants to fight okay yeah so you've said that thinking is overrated speaking from a personal point of view I overthink everything I naturally have a very anxious mind yeah. and I often find that you know it overpowers me and it gets the better of me so I'm interested to know where do you get your mental fortitude from also what are your coping mechanisms when that fortitude starts to slip and sort of how do you get out of that place? Uh, for me I'll uh, go to the gym that's like really the best thing for just levelling my, my head um, and I'll, I'll listen to an audio book because it takes my mind off and, and calms me down um, and uh, yeah just your the human brain is programmed to tell you not to do things because it wants to you're as you're supposed to take the path of least resistance the, the human mind doesn't want to do anything that's difficult so it's normal so when you're having doubts that you tell yourself it's okay that's normal you just need to kind of just say hey just push them push them to the side and what's the worst that can happen just carry on Oh, you've got any advice? Um, well, I have a real fascination with the psychology yeah. of survival um, and why people, like why certain people go out into survival situations and they'll walk out alive whereas other people don't. Uh, and the reality is that, you know, like in our everyday lives in London, we're, there's maybe like a lot of stress and things, but they're not necessarily life or death scenarios. But whereas when you're genuinely out, and this is where like the outdoors is such a therapeutic uh, has such therapeutic benefits is that when you're actually out there in those remote and extreme environments you, you have to get on with stuff you have to do it because you are responsible for yourself 
uh, and you have to own the decisions that you're making there's no vagueness involved in that and people just come into their own and it's often the people that question themselves at the most that actually really thrive in these environments and it's like that's I love that like when I'm guiding when you see somebody yeah. who's comes full of self-doubt and then just goes away like this superhero it's amazing yeah <laughs> So you need to go on an expedition. Yeah. <laughs> That'll square you away. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll have a quick go at that as well. Um, a lot of it comes down to you need to train your mind a little bit. You need to make sure that you're a lot more present, living in the now. Again, it comes down to having that sort of like juvenile mindset slightly. You know, kids are great. You know, when they're an 18-month-old, they just live in the moment. They don't care what's happened and they don't care what's not happened and what might happen. They just live in that moment. That, you know, it takes a bit for us to get ourselves back into that mindset because we're adults you know we've, we've learned stuff uh, but that's that's a big one for me and then all, and then the other one is being a little bit more sort of uh, respectful of your emotions you know if you wake up in the morning feeling a bit low or there's something going on in your mind sit down on the end of the bed or sit down on the couch and actually explore why you feel like that instead of ignoring it and then continuing on with that anxious feeling or that feeling of anger or that feeling of dread have a look at why you feel like that, address it, go and do what you need to do, whether it's going to the gym or having a cup of coffee or paying the bill that's pissing you off, get it done and then you'll put yourself into a better frame of mind to then go out into the big wide world and crack on with the rest of the day. Uh, I'm going to start wrapping it up there. I'd like to firstly thank Megan and James for coming along because that was awesome. I mean, you're two amazing people and I feel really privileged to be sat here with you. Thank you for having us. Um, I'd like to thank, obviously, the Book of Man giving me the opportunity to be here, gobbing off, talking to really interesting people. And also, obviously, Talisker, you know, they support us. I like Talisker. But mainly, I'd like to thank all of you for turning up and coming along and listening to us. Firstly, well, mainly because the money that you've spent to come here does go towards Rock to Recovery. Martin mentioned it earlier. Rock to Recovery is an organisation I founded with a friend of mine, Jamie Sanderson. It was initially there to help and support veterans that were from the military suffering with mental health issues and also re-engaging with a civilian life which eventually does it happens to everyone that's in the military but it's morphed it's and it's grown and it's become a bigger thing now and we're actually there now for the emergency services as well so we support first responders paramedics firefighters police coast guard you know anyone that needs it really we don't turn anyone around uh, turn anyone away sorry so you know to be able to support that really does mean a lot and it does help people it, it changes people's lives so I'd really like to say thank you to all for, for coming along today tonight and listening to two amazing people so thank you very much Thanks very much to Megan and to James and to our audience here. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow me and the Book of Man for the latest news. Thanks to Talisker for supporting us and make sure you follow them too. Cheers. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 